1: I. Live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Scott Wapner in tonight for Melissa Lee. Our traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, Karen Feinerman, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, a roller coaster day for stocks, but one technician has picks no matter which way you think the market's heading. We'll get his bull and bear calls. Plus, a trio of newly public companies on the move after their latest earnings reports. Will the results help the once hot stocks regain their early IPO glory? The desk breaks down those numbers and all eyes on jobs. Investors eagerly awaiting tomorrow's employment report for November. Can we break the recent trend of slowing growth? But we start with Tesla tonight getting a boost after hours after Morgan Stanley raised its price target on the stock from $440 to $500. 50% 50% higher than where it ended the day. Uh, what do you make of this call? Guy Adami. This I'm going Adam through Jonas, it now. So right?
2: listen, it's Adam Jonas, and I don't know this to be the case, but I'm reading it now, and I think what he's saying is the bull case, the price target he's raising from 450 to 500 but I don't think he's changing his current price target. I guess it doesn't really matter. The bottom line is this. you know, He says that the potential surge in sentiment through the first half of 2020, that $500 is doable, but I'm not certain they're changing their price target. With that said... It's a stock you have to trade. And I'll say it again that move from basically 275 to 325, 330 in a straight line in October. I think we have to revisit that. Rarely do you see a stock have a day move like that and not revisit it at some point. I what think you, mean, you, mean, by you just... said it's a stock you have to trade. You mean trade
1: it rather than. than Absolutely. It, like,
2: 100%. 100%. And the, and the market moves suggests that. I'm not saying we've done, I've done it correctly by any means, but I'm saying this is a stock that does not go up in a straight line, doesn't go down in a straight line, and I think at this point I'd rather sell it here than own it here. Well, I,
3: here's what I say about Adam Jonas and his call on, on Tesla, I think, consistently over the years. Um, what I like about the way he's handled the stock is I think he's looked at both balance sheet issues and he's looked at the upside and he's looked at the long-term kind of terminal value of some of the, the core things that a lot of people get excited about with, with, with Tesla. Um, when Adam got more cautious on this stock about 12 months ago, um, and definitely he was cautious on this six months ago when I think we were front and center around the balance sheet, I think you know he looked at the CapEx that was getting cut. He looked at a lot of the places that they were really back in on spending, uh, I think he looked at some of the growth dynamics, looked at some of the balance sheet dynamics, looked at the converts that were out there, looked at a couple of these big maturities that were coming and said, look, these are big issues for the company. So um, he must have more confidence also coming out of that last quarter. And, and as you've heard me say many times,
1: one quarter is not enough. So here. let's do this. I have the note in front of me. Let's make a couple of things clear. Number one, this is his bull case. Right. To right. 500. Which is what I was trying to say. His base case Remains unchanged with a price target of 250
2: And that's the point I, I was to make trying sure, to make. I, know, I the just top want to underscore show. for
1: everybody this is not Adam Jonas going stratospheric tonight. It is simply saying no. maybe the bull case can be a little bit stronger than I. First thought.
3: And, and just to, so to, to, to kind of tie a ribbon around what I was assessing with how Adam Jonas has handled this stock, um, and we've had him on this show multiple times, is uh, that 250 reflects concern on, on, on free cash flow and profitability and balance sheet issues. And I think, you know, until we get that, that, as you know, has been my call.
1: Uh, stocks up, what, 60-some-odd percent in three months? That's a lot.
4: It's a lot. Although I think, you know, so he has this blended—I think the bear case is actually higher— Because the extent that the bear case is they're going to run out of money with the stock here, they can raise all kinds of money easily. So you have to you have to say that bear case is a little bit less. Why why do you think they are not? They don't think they need it.
3: Well, based upon the last quarter, maybe they don't. Um, That's a quick turnaround, but that's fair.
5: Well, I think it's important to remember that it's had this massive run off those lows, what, 50% or something like that. It's still unchanged on the year right here. So it's sitting in the middle of like this massive range over the last 12 months, and it hasn't really made a whole heck of a lot of progress. And I think that's actually a big part of the bear story in this thing, is over the last four or five years, it has not really done anything, especially relative um, to the market here. You know, listen, I look at that note and I say, uh, you know, a great auto analyst, okay? So he's kind of skeptical of whether or not this is an auto company or not. They clearly have the disproportionate market share in the EV market here in North America. Now he's saying to himself, okay, what does it look like in China? I just don't think that if you're incorporating orders, $100 Kickstarter orders for that cyber truck that might or might not be built in a couple of years. I just don't see that how that should factor into your current view on the stock. But what he's doing here is saying that if I'm wrong on my base case scenario, it could be 2x my target. And and, and that's fine. I mean, listen, again, to your point, Tim, I think he's introducing a lot of really important fundamental concepts of how you might value this company and where it could go to the upside and the downside.
3: Yeah. And, and the thing that I get frustrated about with Tesla is people look at um, things five years down the road and say this is going to be a great story in five years so that that's the criticism um by the way good for adam he's been on tour that, that, that's and, the and updating way, Tesla model, that's the I only
1: way that's the only way the the story works right is you you have to look out five years or however long you sound skeptical no but i'm, I'm simply saying it it's the only way you can justify paying up for a stock like this is is believing in the longer term story yeah
4: No, I I think that's right. All right. Because at this, uh, you know, of course, right.
1: Based on what's happening today, it's ludicrous. Yes. Based on what may happen five years from now is the question. Yeah. Well, and, but um, how appropriate
3: is that? And, and do, do analysts treat this stock differently than they treat other stocks? They certainly treat it differently than other auto stocks. And I guess it's not an auto company. Well, but, that's, that's, that's what we know.
5: But that's the thing. If you're an auto analyst, and you're looking at GM, which is the, you know, the, the big one in your coverage. It's a $50 billion market cap with $135 billion and pretty, you know, pretty stagnant sort of sales. And you're looking at a Tesla and you're saying $60 billion market cap. We know that they were losing a lot of money on each car they make and they're expected to do $25 billion sales so to get to for it to grow into that valuation they have to be such a big winner in the next 50 years of auto- automotive everything for it to really to make sense and that's i guess the the easy one for the bears to say that's not likely
1: let me do this let's do breaking news uh, we have brian sullivan in vienna who's been following the opec meeting there
6: we want to get to him uh, with the very latest brian Yeah, hey, Scott, sorry, a little bit chaotic here. Uh, The meeting just wrapped. Iran, as we said, had left. They did come back. I said that might happen. The Iranians, known to come, sometimes leave, show their frustration, then come back in. The meeting actually wrapped. We do not know if they have a deal or not. That's the question. But the UAE oil minister just left, and we are expecting more of the ministers to, indeed, they're they're starting to leave now, and we are expecting perhaps the Saudi oil minister, the son of the king, obviously, his first meeting, uh, Abdulaziz bin Salman, To leave. In fact, I can hear the people. Stay with us, guys, because I can hear the people, uh, the reporters. Obviously, somebody is coming out. Just give me a moment here. We're going to see who this is and try to get some more color and perhaps a comment. There's a lot of activity among the reporters who've been here for more than 12 hours today waiting for something. They canceled the press conference. They canceled the media scrum. So there's been almost no direct access to the minister. Hold on, guys. I'm going to see if we can't. Do something here. Hold on. Yep, yep, yep. It's okay. Stop
4: stop
6: stop, stop. Um, I'm g- stop, stop,
7: stop. Yes.
6: Hold on, guys. And I've just lost IFB. Hold on.
7: Open the door.
6: Here comes the Saudi minister now. Let's go this way. Okay, hold on, guys. I've lost IFB, so stand by. He's going to come by. You can see the scrum around him. This is Abdulaziz bin Salman. He is the energy minister. Your Highness, for CNBC, any comments, sir? Hold on. Any any comments, sir, for CNBC? Your Excellency? Okay, are we coming back? Was there a deal done, sir? Was there a deal done? He said, well, he did look at us and said, guys, that we will uh, see you tomorrow. I don't know what that means about the deal. I know there is the OPEC Plus meeting with Russia tomorrow. Um, Quite chaotic here, guys. So, again, no word if a deal is done. But the meeting is done. And we will see you back here from our live coverage at OPEC headquarters tomorrow. We're actually just going to throw up some sleeping bags and uh, grab some bratwurst and perhaps call it a night here.
1: There you go. All right. We appreciate that very much. That's Brian Sullivan live on the scene in Vienna, the OPEC meeting breaking up. And you you saw the the scene there. I I don't want to ask him a question just in case he, he can't hear me. But Oil's kind of frozen, um, maybe waiting to find out what the uh, ultimate outcome is going to be tomorrow. Not much of mo- a move today in either WTI or Brent.
3: No, but interesting because you've had not only Aramco, which people feel has given some decent support to it overall for whatever reasons you want to believe. You've also had some inventory numbers this week that have been very bullish for prices. So you've had API uh, and EIA data, which were significant draws based upon what people expect. The key here is not status quo. The key is to what extent are they going to not only extend deeper into 2020, but probably cut to one and a half to one point six barrels. And I think that if you If you look at where supply-demand dynamics in the market are right now, I think they need to get through the middle part of next year because there is a bit of a glut coming online. Oil prices right now, by the way, are as high as they've been since right when uh, the Aramco targets were were bombed over the summer. So that's, you know, that's pretty pretty impressive going into this meeting.
1: We're literally looking at what could be the worst trade of the last decade Mm -hmm. as we count down the final days of, of this one.
2: Does anybody think that energy is going to be a place to be in 2020? For trades, absolutely they are. I mean, listen, ExxonMobil, for example... Exxon's against 66, 66 and a half, which was the low we saw in December. We bounced around there recently. A lot of people think somebody just came out and said there's 50 percent upside in XOM here. For a trade, it makes sense. Slumberger off a huge double bottom from October at these levels looks interesting. I think you're gonna see analysts start to upgrade them. Are they sustainable moves? No, probably not. But for trades, uh up twenty percent in I don't know, a week and a half, two weeks, I think you can get another 10, 15% out of that.
5: Yeah, I, I mean, maybe because that, you know, Slumberger is obviously there's a lot of leverage there, but look at the XLE and you look at 43% of it is Chevron and Exxon, and the XLE looks like a disaster. It's just a series of lower um, highs over the last six or seven months. It had that nice bounce in the mid 50s uh, recently, but, you know, to me, I, I just think that if you see any weakness in oil, you have that XLE going back down, led by the integrateds, and this trade's kind of a washout for a while. Those were great trades at Hal and Slob and some of those drillers off the lows, and I know that there's some other things going on with you know, some of these other more levered names, those are trades I think the Exxon and the Chevron are sales and rallies.
4: I just think, let's say we get a little bit of a boost in oil, I think there's a lot of supply that's just waiting to come on, and so I wonder how much of a sustained rally could we really see in oil when the supply-demand dy- dynamic might just be off.
1: It's hard to even make a, a, a bet with any conviction not knowing where growth is going to be next year either. We're still kind of up in the air globally on where we're going to shake out.
3: Yeah, and I think people, have. have, we've always tried to determine whether this is a supply story or demand story. And I think it's really, as we're all kind of saying, it's it's a supply story. I I do think that Big EMP and uh, and even some of the mid-cap players and some of the refiners are being run more. For, I say this all the time, but there's much less capex. They're not throwing money at every project. I think they are being run better, and that's the thing that's going to get you the turn. Um, XLE was my final trade last night on a relative value to what I think uh, the S and P has done, and I think that's that's about taking a look at something that's way way oversold.
1: Okay. Let's. Uh, despite the uh, let's get back to the markets. Despite the rocky start to the month, our next guest says you have nothing to fear, and it's time to actually
8: put risk on. Robert Slimer from Fundstrat is at the plasma to break it all down. Hey, Rob. Hey, Scott. Okay, so I think we're at a really interesting point in the market. You know, one of the uh, barometers for risk, obviously, is the small cap index, which we're looking at here. This is a daily chart going back to the beginning of uh, January 19, uh, 2019. And clearly, you know, it's trying to break out of this big trading range between call it 1500 1450 to 1600 And it's sitting here right at this range. And this is where you really get this bull bear uh, push and pull, right? We've had the, the, the bulls sort of succeeding. Now, a lot of the bears are arguing this is where it peaks out, and it's possible. There's certainly an argument there, but I think this 1580 level is really key. In fact, I think we're not going to get much of a pullback here, so we're going to see how that's going to turn out. What you really want to focus on, though, is that relative performance versus the S&P 500. It's been in a clear downtrend, all the way through two thousand nineteen you have a low here back in october you have a higher low here and it hasn't quite exceeded this point But I think when that turns that's gonna be a pretty important signal that risk is back on so let's talk about ideas there's bulls and bears in the market people are very bearish for very obvious reasons and, and understandably so we're still bullish we think the market cycle still has a lot more to go on the upside longer term and so let's take a look at PPG the old Pittsburgh plate and glass coming out of this Four year trading range. This is a chart that goes back to 2013. This is the 2015 highs, and it's just coming out of that trading range. There's the low back in the beginning or the middle of the year, sideways and up. That's an incredibly bullish chart. Somebody told me a long time ago trade what you see. Not what you think. And this is a chart that is incredibly bullish coming out of this two-year trading range. It's a really a positive indication for cyclicals. And here's that relative strength just starting to reverse that five-year downtrend. So that's a pretty bullish chart. It's cyclical. We like it long-term. We want to be involved. And then not, not everybody wants to buy cyclical stocks. So here's a growth name, Alibaba. It had its big bear market in here had one leg up, sideways, and starting to break out. So for growth managers, we still like this name, we think there's more upside, and this relative strength is trying to turn. So for the bears, you don't like anything I'm saying, you think the market's negative, it's got more to go on the downside, Let's take a look at Pfizer. You've got about a 3.8 dividend on it. It's come right back to this 200-week moving average, which for me is always the long-term support level. It's an ugly chart, but it's into a tremendous amount of support here, and I think your downside's limited. You're going to get paid to own it. You can ride out whatever volatility we see going into the end of the year, beginning of the first quarter, and that relative strength has just been crushed. I think you can do fairly well adding this to a portfolio to diversify against some of the cyclicals, and you'll be paid uh, going out through the end of the year. Rob, come on over. We will
1: continue the conversation. There are a lot of people who look at the Russell, sort of, if you want to call it, breakout over the last three months. It's outperformed the S and P, and say that that's confirmation that you've got a a higher move.
2: Yeah. Have we broken out though? The high in April in the IWM, the Russell was 161. Here we are now, basically at 161. So. In my book, it takes a little more to see the breakout. I mean, I think you can make an argument that we're sort of topping out here. If we're not, you probably have another 7.5% to that 174 level. Quickly on PPG, I think Mike McGarry was on with Jim Cramer last night, the CEO of PPG, and he really made a very bullish case, but... You're talking about a company with 10% EPS, EPS growth that trades at a 20 multiple. That's rich
8: in this environment, in my opinion. What about Guy's take on, on the Russell? So he's right. Look, it's, it's, it's marginally broken out, and it's sitting on top of that trading range. And all the short-term indicators are overbought. People have been talking about the short-term data being stretched for, what, the last two to three weeks? I think the, bull, the bears have been sort of run over on that. But I think it's just marking time. So we're going to see, I think, 1580 on the, S, on the Russell 2000 is a pretty critical level. I think it goes higher. I think the pattern that we saw through the middle of 2019, where we had these rallies and fails and rallies and fails, that's not the pattern to be looking at. The cycle bottomed, and I think it's starting to emerge to the upside. I think the market's in a trending environment. Short-term oversold going to stay. Sorry, short-term overbought is going to stay overbought for quite some time. What you just said is something you could
3: attach to commodities and a lot of industrial names. In fact, PPG uh, underperformed the S&P by almost 30% on a five-year basis. We just talked about the XLE. Is that a sign that a
8: lot of these trades are starting to move? I think so. When you look at a lot of these charts, they've had one to two-year sideways to down bear markets. Many of them caught up to 200-week moving average. That's a long-term, four-year trend. And they're starting to bottom. We saw that with Caterpillar. We saw it with J.P. Morgan breaking out of that two-year trading range. So incrementally, you're seeing charts break out of these two-year trading ranges. I think it's, I think it's still very bullish.
4: So you saw the first chart you had is pretty big divergence, right? Between, very. How wide have you seen that divergence get?
8: You, you know, Karen, I'd have to go back and look at it. I don't have a metric for you, but uh, the Russell doesn't. In fact, the Russell doesn't lead in the big bull markets. It actually lags. On a five-year rolling basis, if you go back in time, it's not the leadership in the market. You get spurts. But it doesn't have to lead for us to be in a bull market. Rob, it's good having you. Thank you. Thanks for being here.
1: All right, coming up, we have some after-hours action in Zoom, video, uh, CrowdStrike, and Ultra Beauty. Those companies just reporting results. We will break down the big headlines. Plus, presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren proposing a big change to how companies do business. More on that is ahead. We're live from Times Square in New York City, and there's much more Fast Money right after this.
0: Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.
1: Welcome back to Fast Money. Time for a little earnings whip around from a couple recent IPOs to a big name in beauty, we have Seema Modi standing by with the latest on Zoom video and CrowdStrike. We'll be start with Rahel Solomon back at HQ with the latest on Ulta. Rahel?
9: Hi, Scott. So what a difference a quarter makes. Shares of Ulta are rallying after a strong third quarter. Last time I checked, they were up about 10%, about 9.6% now. So in August, they reported the stock tanked about 30% after disappointing results. The news today providing a bit of relief for the stock. Now, domestic makeup sales are soft across the industry, but where we're seeing growth is skincare on the conference call that's taking place right now? CEO Mary Dillon pointed to how they're trying to capitalize on that. Take a listen.
7: We're taking a number of actions to ensure we fully capture the opportunity of these skincare trends. For example, this year we've added more than 30 new skincare brands to our assortment, increasing our offering across mass and prestige. And we're increasing the focus on skincare in our marketing campaigns as well as leveraging flex space in stores to highlight key brands and newness in this growing category.
9: And the Kylie Cosmetics and Cody partnership that was announced a few weeks ago, that will almost certainly come up. Ulta is the exclusive retail partner for the brand. Scott, we're going to flag any news we get from the call on that. Okay.
1: Rahel, we appreciate that very much. Let's trade it here on the desk. Yeah,
4: Yeah, it was kind of a big relief rally. I was looking at the straddle before it was announced. They were expecting an eight or nine percent move, but This is interesting to me because the the P.E. multiple here had really gotten crushed. It had been the last three years average of 30, and it was below 20 going into this print, so there was a lot of skepticism. It wasn't a huge, giant quarter, but it's certainly good enough, and I think... I think we'll see it continue to be re-rated a little higher, back closer to that higher multiple.
3: I, I just think there's such a tailwind in this space still. I mean, when you when you talk about it, even, even guys probably exfoliating after mm-hmm. the show tonight. So, I mean, I think if you look at the margins in this space, you look at the competition, but you look at what Alta's been able to do, um, I would like I like the trend here.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, I, he, I, I have to respond to that. I can't just sit here, although I typically would, but I use St. Ives Scrub. It's made from... Apricot pits that I believe are crushed. It's a wonderful exfoliant. Number one. That's why at age 82 I look wow. the way I do, Dan. Yes. Number yes. two. If you look at Ulta, it traded down to 230, basically that was a December low held. Valuation is reasonable. Probably has 18% growth rate. Margins were better than people were expecting at 10% operating margin. I think despite this move higher, you can buy the stock still. Okay, let's move on to Zoom and <laughs> I don't know. Oh, you don't have to respond. You just have to move on. Go to Zoom. Great TV show. The The only thing we can do.
1: Our Seema Modi is all over those earnings results after the bell. Seema, what's the latest?
9: Okay, Scott, three words. Slowing revenue growth. That is not what the street wants to hear from Zoom and IPO. Darling, that has been on a tear this year. Revenue growing by 85% in the third quarter compared to a 96% growth rate in the previous quarter. Zoom, which specializes in remote conferencing services, went public in April at $62 a share. Even with today's losses, it's still up about 77% since its IPO. Now, another recent listing, cybersecurity firm CrowdStrike trading higher at this hour strong earnings plus it raised its guidance for fiscal 2020 as more companies prioritize security services over concerns of getting hacked the cfo of the company said he expects the company to be free cash flow positive in fiscal 2021 the stock Had a strong start on the public markets, but recently has been uh, under pressure. In just a few days, CrowdStrike's IPO lockup is set to expire. The stock is down about 44% from its highs hit back in August. Scott, I'll send it back to you.
1: All right, appreciate that. Seema, thank you. Tim. Well, CrowdStrike, to me, their their
3: customer list is a who's who of the Fortune 50, Fortune 500, whatever you want to say. They are taking market share. This was one of those high-profile IPOs that wasn't making money that went from 95 down to 50, as we just discussed. Um, the fact that they are taking market share right now in the cloud, they're taking it from, as Symantec goes through their acquisition, who is the legacy player. Um, I think at these levels, the market has been able to digest how much was hype and how much is real. And again, their customer
5: list is a who's who, and that is an interesting order book. All right. I hear they got that server. Um, Let's go to Zoom, though, Um, because the Zoom is really interesting because, you know, the story of 2019 were all these very expensive um, tech IPOs and, you know, most of them were losing money. This one was basically not losing money. I mean, this is a break even company. And that was a really interesting part of this story. Um, It's still up 100 percent from its IPO um, earlier in the year. And this is one where, okay, so they're decelerating from 90 something percent growth. This is gonna be a 30% plus grower for years to come. And when you talk about where they are in the enterprise and the clients that they have to sign up, the adoption is very early on this product. So to me, you know, down 10% in the aftermarket, I suspect this thing closes well on the year because I know this is a name that is still in demand because they are basically profitable um, on an adjusted basis. Everything's gonna be scrutinized more heavily uh, in the year ahead for certain,
1: this name notwithstanding. All right. For more on today's big day of earnings, head over to CNBC.com. And here's what else we have coming up on Fast today.
2: Elizabeth Warren has some big plans for big mergers. What her proposal could mean for M&A and the startup trying to keep up with the big guys. And later, California is clamoring to get the cannabis industry to fall in line. But will this be another stumbling block for the stocks? We dive into that and more when Fast Money returns.
0: Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon-intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.
1: Welcome back, Democratic hopeful Elizabeth Warren, cracking down with a new antitrust policy, one that would ban, quote, mega mergers between big companies. Elon Moy is in D.C. with more on this. Elon.
10: Well, Scott, this is still just draft legislation, but it does put some flesh on the bones of the campaign promises that Warren has been making on the trail. Now, a source tells me the new ban would kick in when one of the merging companies has $40 billion in annual revenue. It would also apply if both of the companies each have at least $15 billion in sales, so that would mean that her plan would cover more than 200 of the companies on the Fortune 500 list, from General Electric to Goodyear Tires to The Gap. Now, Some of the elements in the bill are similar to what we've heard from other Democratic presidential candidates, like rival Bernie Sanders. Now, he's also called for bright lines for banning mergers, though he did not provide any specific numbers. Sanders also suggested undoing deals that were done during the Trump administration, still still unclear if Warren's bill would be retroactive. I am told, though, that her office is talking to Congressman David Cicilline as a potential co-sponsor for this legislation. He is the one leading the House antitrust investigation into big tech, and that has yet to wrap up. So the timeline for introduction is still up in the air. Meanwhile, sources do caution that this is a work in progress, so those $40 billion and $15 billion thresholds could still change, and that maybe the metrics should be something like total assets of market share or perhaps all of the above. But ultimately, the goals of concrete parameters for mergers and shifting the burden to business to explain why mergers make sense, those aren't going to change. Scott, back over to you.
1: All right, Elon, thank you. That's Elon Moy in uh, in D.C. Um, A work in progress. From a candidate who it's not even not close to the, getting the nomination. Not. This sounds like a little out there now.
3: Well, I mean, fifteen billion, forty billion. It's nothing. I mean, these are these are bright lines. I mean, I, I it's going to be blinding light um, when you talk about real companies and, and a DOJ that's there to do this job and, and evaluate every deal based upon the merits of the deal and the actual uh, ability or you know whether there are anti-competitive dynamics at work. So I, you know. I don't think this is a very market-friendly dynamic, to say the least. You think? And I don't (laughs) think this is something that really is something we should be worried about. I don't think this is... That's kind of my point at the the top. DOA.
4: it should be DOA. I mean, this is like legislation that's worse, saying we don't care what industry you're in, what the deal yes. is, what the market is, how big it is, who your competitors are. $40 billion, 15, that's the way we should decide.
5: There's a sense of irony here, because you go back and look at mega mergers and really what we're talking about, she seems most focused on the higher end. They don't really go that well, you know, at the end of the day. So it might be doing the C-suite in the U.S. a bit of a favor, but I would tell you that it, you're, I think what you're all saying is we don't need legislation. We have government agencies to take care of this sort of stuff. And and so, um, obviously, as the political winds change, we see different um, attitudes towards these sorts of mergers. But the bigger issue might be right now, what does it look like with companies merging and how much can China block it or the U.S. block a cross-border deal? Put all this stuff together and it doesn't really kind of uh, portend well for M&A going forward if this was to become legislation. All right. Well, speaking of
1: 2020, our next guest says stocks could see a big rally in the new year. Let's bring in Jonathan Golub, chief U.S. equity strategist at Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse. Excuse me. Welcome back. Thank you. Um, just playing off this, this news from, from Elizabeth Warren, I mean, that's just one of the kinds of risks that investors are going to have to entertain in 2020. Yeah, I mean, huh? I mean,
11: and, I, and I think that, that you guys all, all, all got this right, which is this isn't going to happen this this is campaign rhetoric this isn't really proposed legislation that that has as a shot and there's all kinds of mechanisms to address these kinds of things and Karen, you you hit it this is just not this is not the way it's going to happen but the more important thing is the market doesn't care uh, and frankly i think right now if you if you don't look at the polls but you do a survey among you know wall streeters what they're really saying is is that you're either going to have the president with the, with another term or a um, you know or a moderate democrat and that these issues are probably not issues that we're going to have to face. Whether that's right or not, I don't know, but that's really a consensus view among investors. The headline for the market next year for investors is going to be what, do you think? The the headline is that the earnings are going to be okay. The market is going to do way better than you think on okay earnings, and I think. Well, I mean, look at the return of capital. The companies right now you have a dividend yield of two percent. You have companies buying back more than two percent of shares, so the return of capital is over four. Interest rates are under two percent. You have a Fed who's been pretty clear that they're not going to be an adversary. I mean, look, look at last year. The Fed was adversarial to the market. Um, this year, will probably. Our estimate is that we'll probably end up with five plus percent EPS growth. Last year, it was about one. And that last year, 2019, so better but not brilliant earnings. Market can go up with that. I, I think that's a hundred percent. Do my, my target is a little bit shy of 10 percent upside from. From here, and I think that you're going to get that. I think there's this weird reluctance people have when the multiple on, on the market is 18 to say, it's already higher than normal, can't go any higher. But only because
1: right. it, it, most of the stuff that's happened in the market, the gains are due to multiple expansion now, right? Yeah, the earnings weren't there. Really, now I mean, you really need earnings to no, carry, but, don't but,
11: you? but take a look what happened this year is, is that the big pickup that we had in multiples was an unwinding of the fourth quarter of last year. So if you looked at this year and, and last year combined... You have basically, you know, rel- relatively flat-ish, you know, multiples. And you have, okay, you know, you're not looking at anything that's, that's so brilliant. So, but I think the, the real key here is is that the cost of capital is low compared to the return of capital. That means this thing is going to go up. And where people are going to get this wrong is they're going to only look at an earnings number and they're going to miss the fact that the environment is supportive.
2: You can't make a market timing call on the back of this, but Warren Buffett's sitting around with, $122 billion or so of cash. His big indicator, the one that he looks at, I think it's the Wilshire 5000 market cap over GDP is like 147%. Last time we saw something like that was, I think, in 2000. I mean, the market's extended on his metrics. Is that scary?
11: Um, no. I mean, I'll, first of all, what, what that doesn't look at is, What's the discount rate? What's, what's the interest rate environment? And how strong is the economy? How much of... Take a look, look at Germany, for example. They have a huge economy and very small capital markets, right? We have a big capital market and less bank lending. So it, it's, you know, is it a crude rule, you know, rule of thumb? Yeah, that's nothing more than that. So, yeah, I don't, I don't see that there's right now is, is, a, is a headwind. What would make me concerned um, if you have... Um, if if inflation we have a tight labor market nobody's talking about inflation do i think we're going to see it absolutely not the markets a little bit ahead on the cyclical um rally that that we're we're convinced that the economic data is going to get better do i think it's going to show up absolutely could we be wrong collectively sure i mean right now we still have an ism that has not yet really shown any any resilience to jump but there's a whole bunch of other metrics that are saying it's going to so i'm i'm on the i'm on the right side of this one but, you know, we could all be disappointed.
3: Jonathan, it's good to
1: see you. Good to see Thanks you.
3: Thanks for being here. Tim? Well, it's interesting. And in German factory orders this morning were down 0.4%. They're expected to be higher. So the German economy is not showing you any signs of turning around. Um, the big numbers, we have payrolls tomorrow. So the, the question is, if the U.S. consumer stays working and stays employed and we get 3 to 4% uh, wage gains, that's, that's going to be very difficult to derail uh, in terms of the economy. But what we're seeing, and the trends, they're not terrible. But they're not good on ADP. They're not good on today's jobless claims. And, you know, uh, we're not hiring more people. We're not necessarily firing more people right now. But that's something you have to watch. Claire, quickly.
4: Uh, I, I mean, he makes sense. I think, actually, the Fed, we, I could see us getting more help from the Fed next year, actually, which would be good for stocks.
1: Yeah. All right. Speaking of trade, don't miss National Economic Council Director Larry Kudlow on Squawk on the street tomorrow, 930 a.m. Eastern right here on CNBC. Coming up, it's been a bumpy year for one particular airline stock. What's going on and will there be more turbulence ahead? Oh, will break it all down nice next. Job. We're back on Fast Money. United Airlines CEO Oscar Munoz, the latest exec stepping down in a busy week of top-level shakeups. United President Scott Kirby set to take his place. Phil LeBeau in Chicago with more. Hi, Phil.
12: Hey, Scott, this is a move that doesn't come as a huge surprise in the airline industry. Look, Oscar Munoz, when he hired uh, Scott Kirby back in 2016, most everybody said, look, it's only a matter of time before Oscar Munoz, once he writes the ship, might say, okay, I'm going to turn over the reins to you. That's what's going to happen next May. Munoz moves up to the executive chairman job. Scott Kirby becomes CEO. And this brings up the question of Kirby's game plan for United. It's basically going to be the same one we've seen since he came to United. And it's a pretty simple formula that has really paid off. He's added 4-6% to capacity in 2018. This year he'll do it again next year. That means more flights here in the U.S. going through their hubs, particularly Denver, Chicago, Houston. That grows revenue. The margins also grow along with that. And guess what else grows? Earnings. Take a look at United versus their biggest competitors over the last couple of years. No comparison. They're up 40%. Over the last couple of years, yes, it's been relatively flat this year, but the entire industry has been like that. And I also want to show you United versus American Airlines. And the reason we're showing you this, if you look at American Airlines, well, that's just United by itself. But if you look at the American Airlines over the last year, it's down, I think, 26%. You look at United, it has outperformed American. The reason I'm pointing this out, Scott, is that it has been swirling around in the rumor circles in the airline industry over the last couple of months. That Americans board would say you know what, we lost Scott Kirby back in 2016, and we lost a lot of our mojo. Should we bring him back potentially as a CEO? Now, no formal offer was ever made to Scott Kirby, and we're not saying that Doug Parker is going to be replaced as American CEO, but that rumor was out there. has to make you wonder if at some point the United Board, Scott, that they said, okay, we've got him here. Let's not lose him. Let's yeah. move him into the top job.
1: You don't want to let him out the door. Phil, thank you. We appreciate it. That's Phil LeBeau. It just speaks to how highly regarded Mr. Kirby is in the industry.
3: And and I think a lot of people would attribute uh, he to be the growth behind United over the last couple of years, not necessarily Mr. Munoz. Um, Mr. Kirby is seen as a very aggressive industry player. uh, And if anything, I think it puts... United to continue to press the pedal to the metal in in terms of how they're going to try to grow network capacity, which isn't always good for the stock. People get very worried about that. Um, And I would just go on to say that the airlines as as a sector are such great trading stocks. You've seen United in the last two years give you about 15 opportunities of up and down 15 percent ranges. Um, I think they're worth owning on valuation, and I
1: think they're worth trading. Is there only so much a CEO can do in these businesses, and that's why maybe in other businesses when the superstar in waiting gets gets promoted to the top job, the stock pops, stocks aren't doing anything today.
4: Yeah, well, I think so. As Phil said, it's sort of been telegraphed. I mean, they did make him president last summer. But I think you're right. There's more industry stuff. There's more sort of macro How stuff. How many
1: levers can you, as a CEO, what right. can you really do?
4: I mean, well, the, Little things here about and about capacity, there. Add, choosing to add capacity, strategically adding capacity, but then you have some macro issues that... They're all going to move together. Right.
1: Coming up, oil has been on a slide this year, but one options trader is betting big on a big boost ahead. Stick around for that trade. Plus, take a look at our Kramer cam Jim, talking with Chipotle CEO Brian Nichols about the fast food giant's red-hot year. That's not just soared. That full interview is coming up top of the hour on Mad Money. But don't go anywhere. There's more fast after this break. We're back on Fast Money. Energy stocks can't seem to catch a break. The sector getting hit again today, even as crude oil ticked higher amid today's OPEC meetings. Those meetings breaking up just in the past hour. Iran's oil minister saying there is an agreement, but providing no other details. The Saudi energy minister, meanwhile, saying we'll hear, quote, beautiful news tomorrow. Well, we'll see. Energy is by far the worst performing sector this year. It's just about flat this decade. Even more worrisome, two-thirds of the names in the space are in a bear market. But some options traders are betting that things might turn around in 2020. Blue Line Capital President
13: Bill Baruch is over at the plasma with the action there, Bill. Yeah, crude oil has gained as much as six percent this week. But guess what? Energy stocks have missed the bus again. But there are traders out there who are buying options. They're buying call options. In particular, we're looking at the XOP, and this is an ETF here at oil and gas production. And this 22 call strike for January expiration has seen 66,000 contracts trade today. This is almost 30 times the amount of regular daily volume coming into this month. So I'm fading that. I I want to sell those options, and I'll. Show you why. So what we're looking at here first is a chart going back just this year. This is the high last October. We've seen XOP lose 50% into this month. Uh, Right here, though, this trend line also brings some resistance at 22, which happens to be that strike price. And then you also have the 50-day moving average there as well. So we have a lot of resistance up there that this market has to chew through in order for those calls to be productive. That means I want to sell those calls. Let's look farther out as well. And in this chart here, going out to 2008, we also have a low from 2008 and 2016 that we broke. We actually made a new all-time low in XOP on Monday when the S&P futures made a new all-time high overnight coming into Monday. Now, again, that's something I want to fade. I think we're going to see a new low coming in here. And here, I'm going to show you how we're going to play this. Uh, we're going to use what I call a risk reversal spread. I'm going to sell the 22 calls. It's a 22-24 call spread to limit my risk. I'm going to receive 30 cents on that. We're going to turn around and use that money to go ahead and buy this $19.17 put spread. I'm I'm looking for this thing to come in, potentially new lows in XOP. And when that happens, I want to take half that position off with a profit of 50 cents and
5: let the rest ride. Risk reversal.
1: Where have I heard heard that that before?
5: So really interesting. Oh, Bill, bill strategy. What I think is really really nice about it, he's pressing something that is really pressed down to the downside. He thinks there's going to be further downside. And the strategy that he's doing in particular is he's doing it so he's covered. So he can't get blow out, blown out to the upside if he's wrong, pressing that short. So I like the strategy, especially if you're really trying to press something that's already ground down um, a lot because I know that he does not want to be naked short calls and something that's down so much so quickly. You like if he dropped the double R? I love it. It's a great strategy. It's a great Twitter handle. Go
1: follow it, people. <laughs> Bill, it's good to see you. Thank Thanks you. for being here. It's Bill Baruch for more options oh, well, action. Tune into our full show tomorrow, 5 30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, what's up with all the pot stocks heading lower this week? Our cannabis king, there he is. He's here. He's ready to blaze a trail for what's next. We're live at the NASDAQ in Times Square. More fast money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Cannabis stock's getting stoned this week. Uh, Big names like Tilray and Acreage Holdings leading the way lower. And as these names get ready to close the door on what's been an absolutely dismal year, an overlooked legal hurdle might be another buzzkill for the space. Well Well done. Jane Wells is in Los Angeles with those details. Hi, Jane. (laughs)
7: Hey, Scott, one word, compliance. Look, uh, legal businesses, you see their billboards and stores popping up all over L.A. They're learning they have to do things like uh, compliance audits. It's another expense for an industry losing ground to the black market, which, of course, doesn't do audits. Still, those trying to go legit are hanging in there like Melissa Etheridge.
11: It took two years for us to get our manufacturing license in Santa Cruz County, and we are the only one.
7: Etheridge says she has personally spent close to seven figures to get licensed for a cannabis business she's calling Etheridge Farms. Compliance has been an unwelcome surprise. Is anyone compliant in California?
9: I don't believe that they are.
7: Now, Julie Crockett is a compliant expert at MMLG. That's a marijuana consulting firm. The problem is California has so many rules with unintended consequences like you can't give out free samples which makes sense except it becomes an issue when you're at a trade show and your sales can't hand out samples to potential retailers or you can't even give it to your employees for R&D. Oh yeah and cannabis taxes are going up January 1st.
9: There are operators that are conducting illicit activity to pay their licensed industry taxes because they can't charge the consumers those numbers without them going away. I mean, that there is no competition at the consumer level between
10: licensed and unlicensed.
11: Etheridge Farms is not easily, you know, Oh, let's go sell it and make a whole bunch of money because we are dedicated to compliance and to medicinally present this to the world.
7: Uh, Etheridge is a believer in the plant, in legality, and in legality, and she hopes to have her products on the market this summer. Guys.
1: All right. Jane, thank you. Jane Wells for us. All right, Tim, There's uh, space. Good, good work by
3: Jane. But look, things are so bad in the pot industry that Willie Nelson just announced he's not smoking pot anymore. So, I mean, that kind of tells you where things are. Um, what Jane is talking about is exactly, though, what the industry wants. The industry wants more compliance. So when the cold memo came out, which was basically that which said the feds would Leave it to the states. One of the things they said is, you need more regulation. And the industry said, said, yes, see, we need more regulation. So what's going on right now, the black market is running rampant in California. It's making a lot of the, uh, the, the legal uh, non-illicit businesses lose money. They can't compete. So, again, to be clear, um, regulation compliance, uh, whether it's seed to sale, of which there's all kinds of sophisticated software, it's an industry that has had to be compliant if you've been doing it right. And I think this is actually good news, not bad news.
1: So you're long a number of names, in this space. Yeah, and I run You're an ETF, just, but, I mean, let's, let's you be clear. just it's remind been, our viewers what names you are long?
3: It would be a long list. You can go online and, and you know, go to the disclosures on, on Fast Money and my own. I think that's the way we typically do it. Okay. Um, but, what I, I, but what I would say simply is there's no question. If you look at the, you know, the industry continues to trade uh, somewhat lower. I think you've got a dynamic here where you've got a regulatory dynamic going into 2020, which gives you some bright spots, but that valuations are really in a very different place. So... That's what you know, I said, you thought came feel, to me. You need no, to feel like
1: he was blowing me no, off. No, he's there not blowing you off, but
3: quickly. So, this I'm, is I'm, an he oh, time. You know that Battle
2: whole next. Pepperidge Farm remembers? Yeah. Etheridge Farm. I'm, wait, I'm, what, 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 what I am why I? why am I here? here? Etheridge Farm? You do one of those things. Like, you get it? Like, you don't remember. Now, marijuana. Well, short term. That's like 73 times they now say we have to.
5: Let's just go to break.
1: Time
3: now for Final Trades. Tim, you're first. Big airline discussion. A-L, A-A-L is definitely the least favorite name, maybe the least quality name, but I do think valuation is very interesting here. I like A A L here. You want to try that ticker one more time? A-A-L. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. bro, I appreciate the, the second opportunity. Looking out for you, bro. Yeah, you're the man.
4: Ulta. Here. I think this earnings will come as a big relief to many who thought the story was broken. I don't think it is. I like Ulta, even though it's, I don't like to buy things up a lot. But still, good bet.
5: All right, Danny Boy. Uh, yeah, energy stocks pop on anything out of OPEC. I think you sell the XLE. All right, guy. Uh, Great having uh, you here tonight,
2: Scott. I hope you enjoyed your time here on CNBC's Fast it's Money, five o'clock each night. Do you notice Blackstone breaking out to the upside? I'm yeah. sure you talk about it on the half. Talked aboard. about it today. I'm sure, you did. We did. I.
1: It does it for us. I was watching. More tomorrow at 5. Jim Cramer begins right now.
0: Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn
9: right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.